think the sermon's gonna look a little bit different than what we might be used to. And so I, I wanna point out why. And to do that, we need to go back to last week's message. So last week's message, we're in 1 Peter, we're looking at 1 Peter 3.15, and he says, always be prepared to give, or been in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That, that word, make a defense, apologia, where we get apologetics. And so we looked at last week, and we looked at really throughout Scripture, we saw this, and if you missed it, make sure to go back and watch or listen. It is the call of every Christian to engage in apologetics. If you are a believer, you are responsible for engaging in apologetics with the world. And we looked at that biblically. What did we also look at last week? Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. I want to reread Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, where in Ephesians 4, if you go through up to 14, you see this call on apologetics to go deeper in our faith and our maturity and our knowledge and understanding of theology. But in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, it says, And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if you all, if we all collectively, our work of the ministry is apologetics, well, then it's also our responsibility as your leadership to equip you in this. And so this week, we're going to do some apologetics. And we're going to look at what I believe is the foundational apologetic in the believer's life. So before we dive in, please join me in prayer. God, thank you for who you are. Uh, thank you for your mercy, for your patience, for how you bear with us. Thank you for the blessing of church and the blessing of accountability to one another, the beauty of being able to go to one another and confess and receive forgiveness and um, just the joy that comes from being one in you. Thank you for the chance to raise our voices as one and praise you. And now to open your word, to look at your word, and to see the incredible way that you have blessed us with your word and the certainty of knowing who you are. It is such a privilege to be adopted by you, and we praise you for that. We ask that this time would be a continuation of worship, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would prepare us to learn, to grow, to be the church as you intend it to be. We lay aside ourselves. We ask you to make this time holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we get to the foundation, what I, what I think is really the foundation of apologetics, before we get to that, we have to understand some basics about this. We do not gauge in apologetics just to win arguments. If you're excited for this and you're like, oh, Sam's going to lay out and I can finally shut my cousin up at Thanksgiving, who's so obnoxious, do yourself a favor, step out of the room, pray for the right heart. We do not engage in this just so that we can be intellectually superior to someone. If I'm engaging in apologetics because Mario's my coworker and I can't stand how much he makes fun of the Bible, so I just need to know this so that I can prove I'm smarter than him, we have missed the point. What did Peter say in his letter earlier? Seek peace and pursue it. What did we look at what that means? Be evangelists. Desire the lost world reconciled to God. So we engage in apologetics not to win arguments, not to prove ourselves smarter, not to prove ourselves better, but we engage in this to see lost people come to Jesus. 
If that is not our heart in this, we have missed the point entirely. So as we approach apologetics, it should be with an understanding that apologetics and evangelism go hand in hand. Evangelism will frequently raise opportunities to defend what we believe, and in defending what we believe, we strengthen our evangelism, our testimony, our witness of what we believe. And a really cool side note is, allow this stuff to encourage you as a believer as well. I mean, honestly, I think we're lying if we've said, I've never once had a question about anything in the Bible, ever. I've never once questioned God's timing, you know, when I read a news story about a busload of elementary kids that gets in a crash, I've never once thought, God, how could you let that happen? I, I think we all ask these questions. I think we wrestle with doubts at times. I think we struggle with some of these things. So allow apologetics to encourage us as well, which is a really cool side benefit of knowing Scripture deeper and knowing what we believe better. And then another just basic, and this is practical. This is where I said this week's sermon would be a little bit different because we're going to give a lot of very practical tips. So if you're engaging in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe, you're engaging with a coworker, with a family member who's asking questions, try and get specific. And what I mean by that is, you know, if they just say, well, I don't believe God is good. God can't be good. Try and figure out why they believe that. Do they believe that because they just heard that from someone else? Or as you ask questions, as you dig deeper into their pain to understand and know them better, do you come to the realization that, oh, Leanna struggles with believing that God is good because as a kid, she prayed for her grandmother who had cancer and her grandmother still died and that really impacted her as a seven-year-old, right? Like, okay, that is a radically different perspective from just arbitrarily deciding something. So as you're engaging with people in this, desire to understand where they're coming from so that you can best engage with them. What did it say in Colossians? Be mindful of your speech to outsiders, always being aware of how to talk to them, to say what is best for the occasion. So really work to know the person you're talking to because what your heart desires to see them reconciled to Jesus. So they're not just an adversary in an argument. They're someone who you love and care about and want to see rescued, okay? So that's, that, those are the basic rules, the basic guidelines for apologetics. And then I said we're going to begin where I think it needs to begin, where I want this church as individuals to all be prepared to be equipped to make a defense for this to the world. If I ask you, you know, and, and feel free to go as general as possible, I'm not looking for chapter and verse, where would you go if I said, why do you believe in heaven and hell? What book would you point to? Dr. Seuss? Come on, this isn't a hard question. If I asked you, why do you believe in heaven and hell, what book would you point to? Here's a hint. A lot of you probably have it in your hands. Bible. Okay. Why do you believe in creation? The Bible. Why do you believe in God's rules of morality? Well, they're in the Bible, right? Super convenient that you believe it just because it's in the Bible. I'm your friend. I'm your neighbor. I'm your family member. I don't think the Bible's legitimate. I mean, I don't accept the Bible as an authentic document. So I really don't care that you say it's in the Bible because I don't think the Bible counts for anything. It's been altered over history. It's been messed with. It's been tampered with. It's not divinely inspired. It's not accurate. It's not a reliable document. So it doesn't matter to me that you say, I believe it because it's in the Bible because I don't take the Bible seriously. I have had this conversation with many friends who don't believe in God. 
because when you strip away the layers, when you boil it down to, a lot of times it comes down to, I don't take the Bible seriously, so it doesn't matter to me what's in the Bible. So the church, Christians, need to be able to defend why should we take the Bible seriously. I mean, how many of you have ever thought, if somebody came to you and was like, I don't accept the Bible as a reliable document, what would your answer be? Uh, pray about it? Well, why should I pray? Because God says to do that? Well, where does he say to do that? In the Bible? Now we're back to the same circle. I don't believe in the Bible. So after today, my hope is, and I, this is, is going to be great information, but it, it's not like we're going to get it immediately, so we're going to make the notes available, but the hope, the desire is that as a church, as a ministry, we are engaging in the work of apologetics, and we as your leadership are equipping you to do so today specifically with why should I trust the Bible? Why should I take it seriously? And when you're looking at a document, when you're looking at any document, the world, and when I say the world, I mean all of us, academic, secular, religious, it doesn't matter what you believe, what you think, the world has three standards by which we test a document to determine, is this accurate? Is this reliable? Is this trustworthy? Is this legitimate? There are three tests we use. One is the bibliographical test. And what that means is how accurately was this work recorded and passed on over time? To do this, we look at manuscripts. I'm gonna introduce some new words to our vocabulary. So autograph, when someone is talking about a historical document and they say autograph, they mean the very original, the very first version is the autograph. And then a duplicate of it, a copy of it, a transcription of it, if it is handwritten, is referred to as a manuscript, as manuscript evidence. So if I wrote a note today, that is the autograph. And then tomorrow, Matt copies down my note word for word, that is a manuscript. Okay, tracking? So the bibliographical test of documents relies on how many pieces of manuscript evidence exist and how close to the original written date do they start to appear. Then we look at the internal evidence test. And what this means is when I'm looking at a document, when I'm looking at one document to another, two copies, one to another, do they disagree with each other? And does the document in and of itself disagree with itself? So in chapter three, it says, you know, the sky is blue. In chapter seven, it says the sky is green. This document disagrees with itself internally. It's not authentic. And then you also have the external evidence test. And this we say, okay, do other works support or refute it? Do other works back up what we see this document claim or not? So if I published a paper that said, hey, I wrote the Declaration of Independence, what would we go to? We would say, well, no, you didn't write the Declaration of Independence because all of these other external sources disprove that you wrote the Declaration of Independence. So Sam, your book claiming you did is not reliable, okay? Three tests, how do we know a document from history is legit, is something to be taken seriously? And when we look at all three of these, wait till we see the Bible. So first, the bibliographical test of the Bible. How was it passed along? First, we have to understand the culture in which it was passed along, the importance of memory. See, now memory doesn't mean as much. I mean, right now, how many people have their phones out taking a picture? So you don't need to memorize this slide because we document everything. Stopped at McDonald's. You know what? I should take a picture of my fries just in case 10 years from now I want to see this picture. I mean, everybody, you ever go through your camera roll and you're like, 
what in the world is this a picture of? Who cares? Why did I ever take this? But we document everything, so we don't need to remember anything. Back then, they needed to remember everything. That was how history, that was how information was shared. And we're talking about very memorable events. If Jim and I go to the park and we just sit there and do nothing and just talk, five years from now, he's probably not going to remember the specifics of that conversation. If Jim and I are in a boat and I get out of the boat and walk on water, that's going to stick in Jim's memory. So we're talking about a culture in which memory was much more prioritized and emphasized and trained in and grown in. And we're talking about highly memorable events. And we're, there's no argument that they weren't using notes as they wrote their letters, as they wrote their accounts of what happened, the Gospels. So that's how it was passed on. But what really stands out in the bibliographical test of the Bible is the manuscript evidence. And when you look at the manuscript evidence of the Bible, we see that Scripture has three times the manuscript evidence of other historical works. I mean, this is incredible, and I, there's a lot on the chart. So the very top line, Iliad by Homer, the Odyssey, the Spartan War, anybody, you've heard of the Iliad, right? By Homer, it's been spoofed in movies, it's inspired different spinoffs. No one disputes that Homer wrote the Iliad. No one disputes that what is in a publication today is what Homer actually wrote back in 400 BC. Right? We're like, yeah, this, you know why? You know why if I went out to the bookstore and I bought a copy of it, I wouldn't argue that what's in that copy is different from what he wrote? Because we have 1,700 pieces of manuscript evidence. So the world is like, yeah, of course, today's version of the Iliad is reliable and accurate because look at all this manuscript evidence. We have 5,700 pieces of manuscript evidence for the Bible. And that's just in Greek. If you go on and you include, if you include Armenian, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Syriac, Georgian, Slavic, and Latin, we have 23,000 manuscript evidence pieces of Scripture. I mean, that's, that's an ant to an elephant. So we have just countless evidence of the Bible documented throughout history. What did I say was the other important piece of bibliographical evidence, of manuscript evidence? Proximity. Here's the original, here's the first copy. How close are they together? If you look at that list, the time gap ranges anywhere from 200 to 1300 years for those other pieces of historical documents that the world accepts without any problem whatsoever. If you look at the gap from the original to the first copy of the Bible, it's 40 years. You guys remember that crazy snowstorm in August in Mansfield of, uh, I think it was 81? Remember that week in August where, where Mansfield was under like 10 feet of snow? Anybody want to disagree with me on that? Yeah, why? Because you were alive in 1981 in Mansfield. And you know that me claiming there was a snowstorm with 10 feet of snow didn't happen. Guys, that's what happened with the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. They're written in the lifespan of people who were alive for it to happen. And the Bible's not talking about a snowstorm. The letters of the Bible, this earliest manuscript evidence, is talking about an individual, about a belief system that the Roman government, the leading authorities, despised. You don't think somebody would have raised an objection 
like, hey, I was alive and I was at that, you know, picnic. Jesus did not multiply fish and bread. I, I was there. That, that did not happen. And we all brought our own food. I mean, this stuff is being recorded when people are alive who would have been there to witness these events. So we have more manuscript evidence than any other historical work, and we have closer proximity manuscript evidence than any other piece of historical work. When you look at the bibliographical test for Scripture, it demolishes the standards and establishes itself as authentic and accurate and legitimate. Okay, well, what about the internal evidence? Because this is where I've heard, you know, it starts to get messy. And what's really funny just last night, Adeline, we're hanging out on the couch and she's watching like a, a theology channel online and it's, it's someone quoting, like they're quoting another speaker who's talking about, well, the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they disagree with what was written on the cross. And so the Bible is historically inaccurate and unreliable. And I was like, wait a minute, what did that guy just say? And she like replayed it and I was like, okay, that is literally one of my points in the sermon tomorrow. So we got to kick out of that. But that also goes to show you that this is what people point to. These are the objections that people raise as to not take the Bible seriously. They point to info inconsistencies. And let me make a point here. We are not talking about moral, philosophical, logical disagreements with the Bible. You know, if someone says, well, I can't accept that the God of Leviticus is also the God of the New Testament, that's not a factual disagreement with the Bible. That is a moral philosophical disagreement with the Bible. So that's a personal level. We're talking about what critics of the Bible, what people who want to discount the Bible point to as factual internal inconsistencies and errors. One of the things they point to is Jesus cleansing the temple. When Jesus drove the moneylenders out of the temple, they say, see, it happened at the start of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it happens towards the end of John. The Gospels disagree. Well, two points to that. One, there's nothing to say that Jesus didn't do it twice. And on an even more fundamental level, John is very clearly not written in chronological order. And so just a little bit of digging reveals, okay, this isn't a criticism with any legs to stand on. Then the next couple, you have a clumping. And learn this law, rule, I don't know how to describe it. But one of the common criticism points to the Bible is, okay, the number X in one gospel account means it is only that number in every other gospel account. And you'll see what I mean by this. I, like I said, I'd, I wish there was like a, you know, Starkey's rule or something that perfectly described this, but there's not an easy name. And so what they mean by that is uh, the number of angels at the tomb, blind men outside Jericho, demon-possessed men, incidents that happen in multiple gospels, in different gospel accounts, they will mention a different number of people. So one gospel account will talk about one angel at the tomb. One gospel account will talk about two angels at the tomb. One gospel account will talk about multiple demon-possessed men. One gospel account will only mention two demon-possessed men. Same thing with uh, the blind men outside Jericho, okay? So different gospel accounts reference a different number of people involved in this incident. And so the faulty logical response to that is, okay, well, because Matthew says one, it means it can only be one for every other gospel account. And the response to this is, again, just simple logic. Would it be, would I be truthful if I said Matt sang worship this morning on the stage? Is that a true statement? Yeah. What if I said three people sang worship this morning on the stage? Is that a true statement? Yes. 
But so what critics of the Bible do is they point to, well, Matt said Matt sang worship on the stage, and then Sam said three people sang worship on the stage. See, they disagree. And it's no, the statements just fit within one another. And so it's a faulty assumption of the number X always means the number X throughout. And these, again, these are some of the most common objections to here is why you discount the internal validity of the Bible. Because if you really think about it, the smaller number is always true, right? One person sang worship, okay? Well, three people sang worship means that one person did sing worship. It's included. And so you see that in the accounts. And then specifically what I referenced earlier, the Gospels all disagree with what was written on the cross. Matthew 27, 37. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Mark 15, 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Luke 23, 38. There was also an inscription over him, This is the King of the Jews. John 19, 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So yes, technically speaking, each of the gospel authors recorded a different phrasing of the sign on the cross. But if what was written on the sign is, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, then all four are absolutely accurate. It's not that they disagree with one another, it's that they present a slightly different perspective. Don't take my word for it. Let's go to one of the foremost legal experts in the history of the United States. He was an integral member in the founding of Harvard Law School. I mean, this is a guy who was literally at his time the expert on legal witness and what would be allowed to serve as legal witness in court. His name's Simon Greenleaf. He says, speaking of the gospel, speaking of the, the gospels say different things about what was on the cross. The gospels disagree with how many people were at the tomb. The gospel, speaking about critics of the gospels, Simon Greenleaf decided to examine them from a legal standpoint. Okay, as a lawyer, as a judge, I want to break this down. He wrote a 613-page treatise. So before you allow anyone to be like, well, did he really put the work in? Yeah, 600 pages worth of it. And he wrote a 600-page treatise called An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in Courts of Justice. So by our own country's legal standards, he says, there is enough of a discrepancy to show that there could have been no previous concert among them and at the same time, such substantial agreement as to show that they were all independent narrators of the same great transaction. So what he's saying is, no, when you look at these four eyewitness accounts, they agree enough on the major things that it's clear they're providing testimony to the same thing, but they have enough of a difference in details that it's clear they didn't make their story up together. Because according to our own legal system, if you've got four witnesses whose story is identical in every single aspect, that starts to get a little suspicious. Like, okay, was there collusion going on? So Greenleaf points out, no, they agree on the majors, but they allow room for difference on the details. It's clear that this is legally verifiable, legitimate eyewitness accounts. It's awesome. I mean, by secular legal standards. It's fantastic. I do, I want to make out one, uh, I want to point out one thing that critics will point to, and that's Ahaziah's age. And in 2 Chronicles 22, 2, and in 2 Kings 8, 6, it's talking about a, a king, a man named Ahaziah. And in one book, it gives his age as 22 years. And in one book, it gives his age as 42 years. 
It says he was 22 when he began to reign. He was 42 when he began to reign. And there are two possible explanations. One is that it's a simple copyist error. We don't have the original autographs. We don't have the very first document. So it's possible that it's a copyist error that then later translations to stick to the integrity of the manuscripts they were working with continued to use. But it's also entirely possible. You can find a number of scholars of Hebrew who think that based on the Hebrew language, when it gives his age as 42 or his supposed age as 42, English translations have actually added in the old. He was 42 years old to make it easier for our linguistic understanding. But you can find numerous Hebrew scholars who, when they say, no, that original language of 42 is not talking about his physical age, but the length of his lineage that began with him. So it would kind of be like if I included Violet's age with my age. This was a linguistic feature in Hebrew. So I'm talking about, you know, the Sam Belsterling household was 63 years old. And it's like, wait a minute, or 63 years. And it's like, wait a minute, Sam died at 58. How could it possibly be 63? Well, because I'm including my children's age in it. And so there are a number of scholars who say that 42 is referring to both his kingly reign and the subsequent kingly reigns of his lineage. So it still wouldn't be an actual discrepancy in information. It would be a linguistic feature that we just don't use anymore. And so we don't understand the sentence structure of that. But that is what people may point to. And so if it is a copyist error, what we have to understand is that in no way, shape or form does it damage the integrity of the Bible or change its message. And this is an idea that's referred to as preservation. Preservation of the gospel. In Psalm 12, 6 through 7, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. And so preservation, we mean that God protects the integrity of his word. So if it is a copyist error, it's a copyist error. But God has preserved, has protected the integrity of the message of his word. And like I said, there you can find a ton of scholars who don't think it's a copyist error. They think it's a very deliberate linguistic feature. But that's the internal test of the Bible, or at least half of it. Because then when we go on with the internal test of the Bible, you hear this question. I've had friends say this to me. Yeah, okay, but the Bible was changed. Like you had one version of the Bible for the first hundred years, then a new group of people came along and they wanted to tweak it and they wanted to add their own thoughts. Like the Bible has been changed over time. So now it agrees because the translators agreed to make it agree. You, you, okay, like the Bible's been messed with. All right, well, let's continue to look at it internally. And I want to pause and make a, a real quick side note here. Genuine believers should know better than to mess with the Bible. I mean, let's look at what God says. Revelation 22, 18 through 19. And this warning is specific to the book of Revelation. You'll see that in John's language, but the principle applies as we see in Deuteronomy and Proverbs. But Revelation 22, 18 to 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. 
Proverbs 30, 5 and 6, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Genuine believers should know better than to mess with Scripture. So I'm just throwing that out there as a, we got to understand this. But to the unbelieving world, they don't care about that, right? Because they don't take the Bible seriously, so they don't take God seriously, so who cares if God says there's consequences to messing with my word? Still doesn't change the fact that the Bible was changed over time. What was it? Internally, what do we have? What we have today is what the church has used throughout history. I mean, if you compare what I'm holding right now to what they used throughout history, it's the same thing. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers and historians, confirmed the New Testament as we have it all the way back in 328 to 373. He wrote about different sections A.D. He says, These are the fountains of salvation, that whoever thirsts may be satisfied by the eloquence which is in them. In them alone is set forth the doctrine of piety. Let no one add to them nor take anything from them. That was in his festal epistle, uh, translated in, in Nicene. So the early church confirmed what we use today as the New Testament, as this is what we accept as Scripture, based on what we've been taught, based on what we have. Going even further back to 90 AD, Josephus, writing about the Old Testament, says, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, as the Greeks have, but only 22 books which contain the records of all the past times which are justly believed to be divine. So Josephus confirmed the Old Testament. Wait a minute. Who caught what the number Josephus said? 22. Pop quiz. How many books do we have in our Old Testament? One less than 40. 39. Good job. Uh, I thought you said the Bible wasn't changed. Josephus is saying the Old Testament is 22 books. My Bible says the Old Testament is 39 books. Great observation, unbelieving world. Let's look at the content of what Josephus considered 22 books. You have the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 through 5. Then you had the former prophets, what was called the former prophets, Joshua, Samuel. See, what we've separated out into two books, 1 and 2 Samuel, was one document, Samuel. Kings. First and second Kings, one document. Ezekiel, all the minor prophets, the ones we're doing in our Bible study on Tuesday nights this summer, that was one document, the book of the 12. So in there, you go from one through five all the way up to 26. Then you have the writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs. Ruth and Judges was one document. Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra and Nehemiah was one document. Chronicles, what we now have as First and Second Chronicles, was one document. Chronicles. So when you look at the content of the 22 books that Josephus confirms as the Old Testament, it's the exact same content that we have today as our Old Testament, just broken out a little bit differently. Uh, an extra page break added in. The content has not changed. What is in God's Word has not changed. The organization was tweaked over time, but the content, God's Word, is unedited. So internally, the Bible backs itself up from generation to generation where you see the same preservation of God's Word. And then the final test, externally, 
do non-biblical works. That's great that Christians back up the integrity of the Bible. They're supposed to. Of course they do. But no atheists, no agnostics, nobody but Christians validate the Bible. Well, beg to disagree. Gary Habermas, writing about the historical Jesus, cataloged 39 different non-biblical works that confirm the life, teachings, death, and crucifixion of Jesus. 39 different historians that we love in the secular academic world, in the religious world. I mean, we're talking about Pliny, we're talking about Tacitus, we're talking about Thallus, we're talking about Josephus. Historians that academia accepts without any hesitation confirm Jesus. Sir William Mitchell Ramsey, this guy's awesome. He started off as agnostic, borderline atheist. I don't think there's a God, but there's no way to know for sure. I'm pretty sure there's not a God, so I'm going to prove there's not a God. And I'm going to go after the book of Luke, because Luke has more detail than any other book of the Bible. So if I can just, if I can poke one hole in Luke, the whole Bible shatters. And so Sir William Mitchell Ramsey devoted himself to debunking Luke. Here's his conclusion. Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed among the very greatest of historians. Further study showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greeks and Asia meet and found it there. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. That was in his writing, The Bearing of Recent Discovery. So after Luke, Ramsey was like, okay, well, I'll go after Paul's letters. There's a lot of detail in all of Paul's letters, and there's a lot of them. You know what he concluded after he tried to break down Paul's letters? Yep, those are totally authentic, too. And then Sir William Mitchell Ramsey stopped trying to disprove the Bible. This is an external source. This is somebody who had no desire to prove the legitimacy of Scripture. Nelson Gluick, uh, not Christian, but kind of believes in God, and, but an archaeologist. Trained archaeologist, trained secularly. He was trained in a school of thought where he received his education to discount the Bible. That archaeology, the study of archaeology, should be removed from Scripture. And what Gluick found after doing this, he says, scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact details historical statements in the Bible. He actually went so far as to say in one of his writings that he was not aware of any archaeological discovery that disproved or disagreed with a fact about the Bible. So externally, historians back up the legitimacy of Scripture and the accuracy of what we have in Scripture. Externally, archaeologists back up what we have in Scripture. Externally, academics, theolo or academic scholars back up what we have in Scripture as being legitimate and accurate and valid. It's awesome. It, it is such a reassurance to know that God's Word has been put under the microscope time and time again by people seeking to prove how wrong it is, and they come away saying, uh, yeah, I got nothing. That's a pretty legitimate document. I can't find fault with it. So when we say, well, I don't accept the Bible as a historically valid document, as authentic as anything to pay attention to, what we're saying, if people say that, they're saying is, I'm comfortable rejecting all secular academic 
religious, I mean all. I'm comfortable rejecting all standards of testing the validity of a document. Because when you look at this, you see that the Bible smashes all three of the tests. Bibliographical, internal, external. This is a historical document that you cannot argue with. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to believe in Jesus. You don't have to believe in God. But it is pure academic folly to say that you don't take the Bible seriously as an accurate, reliable document. We're going to get to believing in God, and we're going to get to why I think it's folly to not believe in God. But we're starting with the foundation. I said this was a foundation of apologetics. And so if I'm talking to somebody and they say that's convenient that it comes from the Bible, I don't even take the Bible seriously, I can walk them through this and say, man, you don't have a singular academic reason to not take the Bible seriously. So if we're going to take the Bible seriously as a legitimate, accurate, trustworthy document in human history, now we can start looking at what's inside of it. Now we can start breaking down the divine authorship of it. Now we can start talking about the authority of it. Now we can start talking about why you should not only accept it as a document in human history, but why you should take the content in it seriously. But today was about laying the foundation. Today was about church. May we be a church ready to make a defense for what we believe in, starting with what we hold to be the Word of God. When we get to 2 Peter, a little bit of a preview, we're going to pick this back up. So if you're someone who you love this stuff, we're going to get to more of it coming up in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, Peter's writing and he says, No prophecy came about from human authors, but as they were led by God. So we're going to look at inspiration. We're going to look at infallibility. We're going to look at what we mean by illumination versus revelation. But I wanted to start here. I wanted to start here with why can we trust the Bible as a source document? If this is my standard of truth, if this is where I get my definition of right and wrong from, why should I take it seriously? If you're here and you're a believer, I hope this encouraged you. I hope this way, even if you've never doubted the integrity of the Bible, even if you've always believed in it, hopefully this was a nice, you know, morale boost of like, wow, man, like I knew the Bible was legitimate, but that is like rock solid. Hopefully this was a pep talk. If you're here and you're doubting, you're questioning, you're wavering, hopefully this answered some of the objections. If you know people who have raised these objections, if you have people who have raised these objections, hopefully this prepared you to go engage with them, to point to what we believe and defend it. This is the work of our ministry. We have to be ready to engage in it. Please join me in prayer. Lord, oh, we thank you for your word. It is incredible. As you said, you guard it, you preserve it. Lord, thank you that you are stronger than our attacks against your word as people, as humanity. Thank you for the integrity of it. God, that you have preserved it throughout time. And we thank you for the blessing of it, Lord, that you have preserved it so that we may know it, so that we may find hope in it. As Paul wrote in one of his letters, that in tough times we find hope in Scripture. Thank you that we have this, that we can open it, that we can engage with it. Lord, forgive us for when we dismiss it. 
I mean, it's mind-blowing to me to examine the Bible from history, to look at this incredible document, this incredible word that you have preserved and protected as your divine word, and then to think that I brush it aside and dismiss time with it because I have better things to do. Oh, Lord, give this people a zeal for your word. Give me a never fully quenched passion for your word. Give me a hunger and a thirst for your word. What a treasure. What a jewel in the crown of the church is your word. We praise you for it. Use us to make a defense to this unbelieving world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.